read God's word and in preparation to read God's holy and errant, uh, infallible word, let us come to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless uh, the reading of God's word and the proclamation of God's word. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, as your word is read and proclaimed, open the eyes of our hearts, we pray that in seeing clearly we may truly understand and understanding that we may believe and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking to honor and glorify you in all that we do. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from the gospel according to Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. And after I read the text, I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open to chapter 8. I'm going to be uh, referencing back the, the passages that come immediately preceding and then immediately after uh, our passage this morning. But hear the word of God. It is written. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him, Jesus, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us, from our sins by his blood to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Several years ago, I had a doctor friend who excitedly told me about how this miracle made sense from a medical perspective. He explained that Medical technology has advanced in recent years and has allowed for illness and injury of the eyes to be healed and corrected. But our eyes are not the only organ involved in our sight. The eyes gather information of the world around us. They take in light in various, its various wavelengths and transmit it as signals through our optic nerve to our brain, which then translates these signals into usable information. It puts all the colors and shapes together into objects. It discerns space and distance and movement. This means that someone can have a vision issue that is specific to their eyes, causing blurriness or loss of depth perception or uh, lack of color discernment, but someone's eyes might work correctly and the person might still have vision problems if their optic nerve or brain is not working properly. And it's pretty remarkable to think about actually the power of the human body and specifically the human brain. It's taking in enormous amounts of information every millisecond in his processing it all instantaneously. And it isn't just our eyes that are feeding information to our brains. We are hearing and smelling and tasting and touching creatures. And our brain is often doing all of these things at once, 
like when we sit at a dinner table and eat and have fellowship. But for someone who has lost one of these senses, the brain doesn't get the exercise it needs and atrophies just like a muscle that isn't exercised. So what happens when someone who has lost vision all of a sudden regains it? Well, the visual cortex of the brain doesn't have the pathways built to translate the information that is being fed, and images can be a confusing blur. And there are case studies of this. In fact, I was reading about one such case study this past week, a 50-year-old man who had been blind since childhood who had his vision restored after a cataract was removed and a new lens put into one eye. All of a sudden, he could see for the first time in decades, but his brain couldn't process what he was seeing. So, for instance, while he could read by touch through Braille or inscribe letters like on tombstones, he could not discern letters by his sight. He could see parts of animals like a cat, but he couldn't put the animal together. Trees, he said, look like something from out of this world. He was no longer visually impaired because of his eyes, but he was still blind mentally. So my doctor friend explained, it makes sense that the man's eyes were healed in Mark 8, and yet he still could not see clearly. When Jesus asked the man, do you see anything? The man responded, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then we are told Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. From the perspective of medical science, the reasoning for the need for this two-stage healing is fairly simple. The man's eyes were healed with Jesus' first healing touch, but not his brain. Then after Jesus touched him a second time, the man's vision was healed in its entirety. And my friend was happy to point out that well before people knew how the human body worked in terms of vision, Scripture is giving witness to the complexity of the human body and the reality that it isn't just our eyes that allow us to see clearly. Now, dearly beloved, while all of this is fascinating, at least to me, Scripture tells us that God knit us together in our mother's wombs. He formed our inward parts. It tells us that he knows our frame, that we are not hidden from God when we are being made in the secret. And the Psalms declare that God saw our unformed substance. So while there are many aspects of how the human body functions that remain a mystery to us, they are not a mystery to God. He created us. And Jesus isn't unaware that in order to heal the man's sight, that his eyes as well as his brain needs to be healed and made whole. Nor is Jesus only capable of healing the man in part. And what's really fascinating about the miracles of healing blindness in the Gospels is that they are all different. In these miracles that are described and not simply mentioned in passing, Jesus never heals, he never heals blindness in the exact same way. It reveals that there's nothing mechanical 
about the way in which Jesus heals. His mercies are specific to the individual, to the need, and to the context. And so it shouldn't surprise us that this miracle in Mark 8 is unique among the other miracles of healing blindness, and in fact, among all of Jesus' other miracles of healing, period. No other miracle occurs in stages as this one does. All the other instances of Jesus healing blindness are shown to bring complete healing immediately. So, why is it, we may ask, that this healing occurs in the way that it does? That Jesus provides his healing touch not once, but twice. And if we look at the context of this passage, then we will get a clue as to the reason. This miracle occurs in the midst of several other miracles, as we may have already noticed through the course of this sermon series. Mark's gospel is filled with miracles. And immediately preceding this passage, recorded at the beginning of chapter 8, Jesus performs his second miracle of food multiplication with the feeding of a large crowd. It's a smaller crowd this time, around 4,000 people, but with the same result. Everyone eats until they are satisfied, and then there are still seven baskets full of leftovers. Now, right after this miracle of food multiplications, two things happen. You can see in verse 11. First, Jesus is accosted by some Pharisees who had come to demand from him a sign from heaven. And Mark's gospel tells us that this demand causes Jesus to sigh deeply in his spirit. The Greek word used to describe this reaction is a rare one. It doesn't get used very often. And it isn't suggesting indignation. It isn't denoting anger. It is expressing despair. It is the groan of dismay over people whose hearts are hardened and stubborn, who are stuck in their disbelief, just as the people were in Noah's day, or the Israelites were in Moses' day. What they are asking of Jesus is that he prove who he is. They want an outward, compelling proof from God himself that Jesus is divine. In other words, they want empirical evidence, empirical proof. But empirical proof eliminates the need for a response of faith and trust. Following this encounter with the Pharisees, the second thing happens. You can see in verse 14 and following, we find Jesus and his disciples in a boat. And Jesus, reflecting on this exchange with the Pharisees, warns his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, probably referring to their opposition to him. But the disciples, who completely miss what Jesus is saying here, take Jesus' mention of leaven and begin discussing the fact that they have forgotten to bring bread on their journey. Now pay attention to what's happening here. Jesus has just finished miraculously feeding 4,000 people after feeding over 5,000 people, and the Pharisees have responded by demanding a sign from him. But now the disciples have the audacity to sit in the boat with him and complain and argue about where they are going to get their next meal from. Seriously? 
Mark is showing us that in, in no uncertain terms, that no one gets it. No one sees. No one understands who Jesus truly is. Listen to what Jesus says to them. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, to, having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And the disciples respond to him, 12. And Jesus continues, in the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And the disciples respond, seven. And so Jesus, in verse 21 of chapter eight, asked them, do you not yet understand? In verse 22, and they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. We remember what Charles Spurgeon said about the miracles of Jesus. All our Lord's miracles were intended to be parables. They were intended to instruct as well as to impress. They are sermons to the eye, just as his spoken discourses were sermons to the ear. And this is indeed true about this miracle. It is a parable. Why was it that the very next thing that happens in the gospel narrative is Jesus performing a miracle of healing blindness? And why is it that this man at Bethsaida was not immediately healed as the others who had their eyes opened by Jesus? Because Jesus was not simply healing this man's blindness. Jesus was teaching a lesson. And it was not simply a lesson about Jesus's power to heal or our ability to see with our eyes, but about God enabling us to see clearly, spiritually speaking. And really, this is what all of the miracles of healing blindness reveal. We especially see this in John 9, where we find the story of Jesus healing the man who was born blind. This healing moves immediately into a conversation with the healed man and the Pharisees in which the Pharisees refuse to acknowledge that the healing has occurred, nor who, has been, who was responsible for performing the, the miracle. This chapter in John's gospel concludes with Jesus in the presence of the Pharisees saying, for judgment I came into this world. That those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Jesus uses the miracle in John 9 to reveal the Pharisees' blindness to who he truly is. Those who thought that they could see are revealed to be blind, while Jesus opens the eyes, the spiritual eyes, of those who are understood to be lost. But this miracle in Mark 8 is unique among the other miracles of giving sight to the blind. Notice the movement we have in Mark 8, the chapter as a whole. We find here a passage that reveals the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees, followed by a passage that reveals the lack of comprehension of the disciples, and finally, a miracle of the recovery of sight to a blind man in two stages. And we shouldn't miss the significance that this miracle is performed in stages. Again, it wasn't that Jesus was incapable of healing the man completely the first time. Rather, the miracle is 
a mirror. It's a mirror of what has just happened with the Pharisees and then Jesus' disciples. It provides a vivid illustration of the movement from unbelief and spiritual blindness to perfect spiritual sight. And this doesn't happen all at once. There is a spiritual progression from not knowing or understanding to misunderstanding to full knowledge and understanding. And it all becomes clear in this question that Jesus asked the man in verse 23. Do you see anything? In no other place does Jesus ask a question like this. He speaks and healing occurs. But the man responds that he sees something, but that his vision isn't yet sharp and well-defined. Jesus proceeds to lay hands on him again, this time providing him the ability to see everything clearly, as verse 25 states. So what Jesus gives us here is a paradigm for faith development. We move from unbelief to misunderstanding to spiritual clarity. We move from opposing Jesus to being attracted to Jesus as a wise teacher, as a miracle worker, as a moral exemplar, to loving and worshiping him as Lord and Savior. God, by his mercy and grace, shines light into our darkness by the power of his Holy Spirit. And with this light comes clarity, at least in part. Where once we were completely unaware of God's presence or in denial of the reality of God or even completely opposed to the idea of God, we become more open to these things. A curiosity arises. And we might develop a sense of ourselves as broken and sinful. We might acquire an appreciation of God's word as a source of wisdom and truth. We might become attracted to the person of Jesus Christ and acknowledge the reality that he did, in fact, exist. We might discover the beauty of a worship service and feel moved emotionally by it. We might find comfort and joy in the presence of a loving Christian fellowship. Unfortunately, there are some who mistake these things for true faith. But none of them mean necessarily that we have placed saving faith in Jesus Christ. Having a sense of ourselves as sinners is not the same as recognizing ourselves to be spiritually bankrupt and hating our sin and mourning over it and repenting of it. Appreciating God's word is not the same as understanding it to be the supreme authority over our lives, the only rule of faith and obedience. Being attracted to Jesus and acknowledging him as a historical figure is not the same as humbling ourselves before him, acknowledging him to be the only way of salvation and submitting ourselves to his lordship. And just because we have been moved emotionally by a worship service or enjoy Christian fellowship does not mean that we are worshiping in spirit and truth or that we understand ourselves to be inextricably bound to the body of believers because we have been engrafted into Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is revealing through this miracle that just because we can discern light does not mean that we have been completely healed of blindness. The illumination which converts us from death to life often occurs gradually. 
And sometimes we think that we see things clearly when we don't. I remember one evening running upon a website with a picture of a circle made up of what must have been hundreds of tiny dots of several different colors. And under the circle, there was a question. Can you see the number in the circle? Not to be fooled, I showed the picture to my wife, Elizabeth, and proudly announced, ha, I'm not falling for this. I know it's a trick. There is no number. Elizabeth looked back at me with a look of shock on her face and said, seriously? You can't see the number? It took me a moment to realize that she wasn't joking. I had assumed she was playing along with what I thought was a trick, but she wasn't. And I discovered that night that I was colorblind, which in retrospect explains a lot of disagreements we had over the years about matching colors. (laughs) Turns out I was wrong in all of those disagreements because I couldn't actually discern true colors. And all of the time, I was so proud of my perfect 2020 vision. The same thing happens in our spiritual lives. We might, like the Pharisees, be seeing Jesus and expecting of him too much, expecting him to be for us what he is not, demanding that if Jesus is real and present, that he would be showing us a nonstop demonstration of the spectacular. Or we might be like the disciples in the boat. We might be seeing Jesus and thinking of him too little not able to see beyond the worldly and the temporal, not realizing who it is we have in our midst. It is blindness to spiritual reality. All of the vivid colors are there, but we can't discern them. And sadly, Mark 8 reveals that those who were supposed to be Jesus' disciples had a degree of spiritual blindness that wasn't much better than that of the Pharisees. Neither the Pharisees nor the disciples are able to accurately see the contours of who Jesus is as the Messiah. But even once God heals our blindness, we don't see distinctly at first. People may be to us trees walking. There is much about the Christian faith that is to be learned and understood. And frankly, it is a shock to the system that is used to living in darkness to finally see light. Sort of like the brain that's attempting to process signals from eyes that are working for the first time ever. Speaking of those whose spiritual blindness is healed, J.C. Ryle states, their vision is dazzled and unaccustomed to the new world into which they have been introduced. It is not till the work of the Spirit has become deeper and their experience has their experience been somewhat matured that they see all things clearly and give to each part of religion its proper place. The problem, as Jesus reveals in the preceding passage, is though, though is that the failure to understand leads to hardness of heart. It isn't just the Pharisees who are susceptible to hardened hearts, it's also the disciples. The disciples have seen, but still do not perceive. And as one commentator states, the plea for understanding is a reminder that faith is not separate from understanding, but possible only through understanding. 
If intellectual and spiritual blindness lead to hardness of heart, blind faith without content must inevitably lead there as well. The faith for which Jesus appeals is a faith born of understanding and insight. So we see that the disciples are being chastised, not for failing to believe, but for seeing and not understanding. And this means that we mustn't ever be content with a blind faith in Jesus. Yes, God calls us to trust him with things that we don't and can't understand. Yes, Jesus calls us to follow him into the unknown, but our trust of God is based on understanding and knowledge. It's based on the revelation of who he is, especially who he, who he has revealed himself to be in Jesus Christ. It's based on understanding him to be a sovereign God who is holding all things together. And it's based on the knowledge of his faithfulness to past generations and on the sacrifice he has made for us in the cross of Christ. So no, we can't have a faith that is a true and saving faith that doesn't actually understand who Jesus is as Lord and Savior. And some might protest that Jesus commands us to have a childlike faith. But what a childlike faith means is that we are to come to God as a child comes to a parent, utterly dependent on the parent. What childlike faith is not is having a faith with an immaturity of understanding. So what we find in this miracle is that Jesus doesn't leave the man seeing people who look like trees. No, he grants him his healing touch that the man might see clearly. And Jesus isn't content with us having incomplete vision either. He wants to rid us of all of our lingering spiritual blindness. He isn't interested in moving us from darkness to dimness. He wants to convert us fully and entirely to clarity in the light of his love. And we see this process playing out in his disciples. In the very next passage, starting in verse 27, at Caesarea Philippi, Peter makes his famous profession of faith that Jesus is the Christ. Blind eyes have been opened and healed. Misperception is becoming comprehension. Of course, in the very next passage, Peter tries to rebuke Jesus for saying that he will have to suffer and die, to which Jesus rebukes Peter, telling him, get behind me, Satan. It is painfully obvious that although Peter has now received spiritual sight, that it is still very blurred. It will not be until the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus that the disciples' vision will become much clearer. But even for us who live on the other side of the crucifixion and resurrection, our spiritual progression is no different. We have the blessing of knowing the end of the story, but it doesn't mean that we come to know everything about Jesus all at once. And just because we know the end of the story, it doesn't mean that we can't be spiritually blind. It could be that we intellectually know the story, but not, have not accepted its truth in our hearts. If by God's grace, the Lord has granted us healing for our spiritual blindness, 
then we still have to undergo a process of being healed of our lingering blindness in which the scales continue to be removed and in which we come to a deeper and more intimate knowledge of who we are and who God is for us. Where God's light becomes brightness for us to rightly illumine our path. Where we can see the enormity of our sin, but where we also see the greatness of God's grace in Jesus Christ where Jesus comes into sharp relief and we see that he is not just attractive, but worthy of submitting our entire lives to. God is not done with us when he grants us saving faith and justifies us. In fact, he's just beginning. And this process of coming to know him, of being healed of blindness, of seeing in a way that brings transformation in our lives is a process of sanctification. And it never ends as long as we are on this side of eternity. This is why the Apostle Peter warning his readers against the ignorant and distorted understandings of Scripture encourages instead that believers be growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reality is that true faith always seeks understanding. It always desires to know and understand the object of faith. It always desires clear vision. It isn't content to remain on spiritual milk. It wants to move beyond the baby food to taste solid protein, to sink its teeth into the juiciest, most prime piece of spiritual meat. If this isn't our heart's desire, then we should examine our faith to see if it is in fact true. But not only are we to be seeking spiritual insight, allowing ourselves to be led by the Spirit, not only are we as individuals to be seeking to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God, but God's Word also encourages us together as a community, to all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we are to grow together as a faith community. The reality is that if is that we are failing as a faith community if we aren't as individuals and together as a community growing in the faith. If our spiritual vision isn't becoming sharper and more focused, if we aren't able to view life more and more through the lens of faith, then something is wrong. Since it is Reformation Sunday, it is fitting to mention two of the mottos that came out of the Protestant Reformation. One is out of darkness, light. It's about spiritual clarity that God's revelation of himself in Scripture brings. The other has to do with the church always advancing in the faith. This motto, which is in the Latin, is often mistranslated and misquoted as saying that the church is reformed and always reforming. And I tell you that it's often mistranslated and misquoted because many have used it as a battle cry for progressivism within the church. What they want the motto to mean is that the church is always changing based on our cultural context. It's always adapting to ensure that we are on the right side of history or up to date with advances in scientific understanding or insights of the social sciences. But what the motto is actually 
saying, what it actually says is that the church is reformed and is always being reformed according to the word of God. What it is expressing is that the church must always be in a position in which the Holy Spirit working through the word of God which is God's primary means of revelation of himself to us, is acting upon the church to give spiritual insight and shape it ever more into the image of Jesus Christ. So the church isn't seeking to push things forward, but is ever seeking to return back to the root. And I pray that this describes us here at Covenant, that we would love the word of God that we would return again and again and again to it, praying that by God's grace, we might be healed of spiritual blindness, that spiritual clarity would come in increasing measure among us, that we would see the Lord Jesus more clearly, that we would know him more dearly, and that as a result, that we would follow him more nearly. And I hope that we never tire of this process of spiritual growth, that we would never become content with imperfect or blurred spiritual vision, but that we would keep striving to grow in faith and understand the object of our faith, namely Jesus Christ, who offered himself up for us that we might have light and be saved from sin and death. So dearly beloved, I pray that we would be steadfast in our commitment to spiritual growth and knowledge, knowing that there is a prize at the end, that one day our faith will become sight, that one day we will no longer see in a mirror dimly, but we will see face to face, that one day we will no longer only know in part, but that we will know as we are fully known. Let us strive for that hope in God's promise to us that he will bring to completion on the day of our Lord that which he began in us. And we will dwell with him for eternity. And to God be all the glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do come to you and we ask that you would heal us of spiritual blindness. That our faith would be increasing, that our knowledge of Jesus Christ would be increasing in a way that we see things clearer and clearer. that we would be able to possess Jesus Christ as we have been possessed by him. And Lord, help us to shine the light of your love into the world that others might see as well and come to know you in saving faith and come to know the love you have for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray this in his holy and precious name. Amen. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ using the Heidelberg Catechism, a catechism that comes out of the Reformation. Question and answer number one. Believer, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort is that I belong body and 
to fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for him. <laughs> 